This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. If you could take your Bible and turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible or a device for that, you can just look under the seat in front of you and find uh, there, are, there are Bibles uh, Bibles underneath the seats, paperback Bibles, and I believe it is page 494 where we're going to be this morning, Mark 10, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 13 through 16. The the word of the day right now is welcome, as Pastor Craig shared last week, and we're going to conclude our series on the gathering this morning talking specifically about welcome, and if I were to give a, a title to this message, it would be welcoming others with God's grace, welcoming others with God's grace, because I hope that we see that the way that we welcome others reveals our grasp of God's welcome of us. It, it demonstrates it, it illustrates it, and it shows how much we grasp God's welcome of us in the way that we welcome others. So in Mark 10, verses 13 through 16, I hope that we see uh, three, three things in the story, and then I want us to, to leave a little room for some application right at the end. And those markers of the story are this. In verse 13, we see a messy opportunity. In verse 14 through 15, we see a shocking correction. And in, in verse 16, we see a perfect example. So a messy opportunity, shocking correction, and a perfect example. We'll make some application and we'll go back to some singing But I'm going to go and read the passage and pray, and then we'll get started here. In verse 13, it says, And they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Father, we ask for the ability to see all that you would have us to see and to live in the good of all that this truth shows us. And we ask that it would change us. We ask that it would transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 13, we see here something really messy taking place. It's messy, but it's an opportunity, and that's kind of what ministry is all about. It's kind of what serving and loving people is all about, and, and it it's happens here in verse 13. It says here that, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. So here, who's the they? The they, it's a, it's a group of moms, okay? Potentially some dads in there. The text doesn't say there aren't any dads, but the, the context is probably a group of mothers who are bringing children. And that are, those children are infants and toddlers. We're, we're, we're thinking babies there, infants, toddlers, small, small kids bringing them to him. And we know they're small because at the end of the passage, he, he's taking them into his arms. So he's either... There's a handoff there, or maybe they're small enough for him to pick up and hold, but they're small kids, and it's a group of moms, and it's after hours. I mean, the sign, 
uh, you know, over the door is, is closed, according to the disciples. And here they come, bringing children, and children are children. That's who children are. They, they, uh, uh, that's, that's pretty profound, I know. But uh, kids are kids, and they're bringing kids at, a, at an off hour here. But they're coming with one specific goal, and you notice what it is. The goal is that he might touch them. They want Jesus to touch their kids. And the idea there is, is two. One is they're probably coming because of the reputation that Jesus, this, this rabbi, is a healer. And he has healed a lot of people. And so the picture there is that we have some desperate moms with potentially some sick kids. Maybe some kids that are very close to death. Maybe some kids that are leprous. And, uh, and here, he has a reputation of healing kids just like that. I mean, he has a reputation of driving a demon out of a child. That's, that's his reputation that's following him. And, and consider the context in Mark. It says earlier in the chapter that they came to the land at Gennesaret and more to shore. And it says, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Recognized him as a healer. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. That's what was happening in this day. When they caught wind of the healing rabbi who has done the miraculous, they go running about and bringing people directly to him in hopes that he would heal them. It says that wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garments. And as many as touched it were made well. That's, that's a powerful reputation that the women catch wind of. You remember also in the book of Mark that uh, there's a huge crowd. They're around Jesus, and uh, these friends want to get a, one of their other friends to Jesus and they remove the roof over, the, over where Jesus is. Do you remember that story? They commit a, a class A misdemeanor to get their friend to Jesus. It's a desperate time. It's a desperate moment. And these are desperate moms that are bringing their kids to, to Jesus. So grab hold of that. There also has the connotation there that Jesus, being a rabbi can bless their kids and do something spiritual over them in the way that some other rabbis did in those days. The Jews were convinced that salvation was by doing good works. That's, that's clear. And Jesus teaches the gospel in the midst of all of this, that salvation is by grace. But moms would ask rabbis of that day to bless their kids by laying their hands on them and pray that they would somehow find their way to God, because it was really unclear in that time what happens to children who die. They're not old enough yet to understand the law. They're not old enough yet to keep the law. And in their understanding, you have to keep the law and keep it really well in order to find a place with God. And so they're coming asking for a blessing of salvation. A, a prayer over them that somehow, some way, they would find their way 
back to God. Were they to die that day or the next day? So they're, they're desperate for a lot of different reasons. And in this moment of desperation, notice what the disciples do. It says right after that, and the disciples rebuked them. So they're, picture that it's probably taking place, you know, right at a doorway. You know, they're inside, they've shut the door, they've mentally checked out, they're ready to rest and relax, and then they get a knock at the door, group of women, lots of kids, and the disciples uh, set about a ministry uh, perspective here. We'll tell them to come back tomorrow, or the next day, or maybe not at all. Uh, They rebuke them. And that word rebuke is very strong. It it actually means that they scolded them. They reprimanded the women for coming. It's really harsh. It's very strong language that Mark is using to describe the disciples' reaction to to these ladies. Now, why would they do this? Well, the, 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 the shortest answer to this is probably that they're just immature. They are disciples, which means they are students, they are learning, they are growing, they are failing, and they're failing forward, and Jesus is helping them. And so many stories in the Gospels, they mess up, and Jesus corrects them, and, and then they learn. And that's part of being a disciple. You're never going to grow without some failure and without, without uh, making mistakes. We see in other places that, you know, crowds come and they tell Jesus, you know, send the crowds away. Do you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? They say, well, Jesus, we don't have no time for this. We have no ability. We have no, no strength left. Send the crowds away. And Jesus says, no, this is an opportunity to show the kingdom. And so give them something to eat. Don't send the crowds away. Bring them and, and minister to them. So they're immature. They, they don't always get it. They mess up. They fail, and, and that's, that's a pretty, pretty simple answer. But probably, uh, given the context, they, they don't think that children really mattered. Because it was so unclear in that time what happened to kids, and they, they, they weren't old enough, again, to keep the law, it, it's just, they're sort of a moot issue. They're just there. We need to protect and provide for them and bring them up in the law and that kind of thing. But it's just really not, not super clear what place they had in the, the Jewish system. And for these new disciples who were just starting to understand grace, it wasn't real clear what place they had. They, they could give no, no decision to follow Jesus. So, you know, come back tomorrow in, in this unclarity and vagueness. And Jesus sees this. He, he looks at their response, and then he provides in verse 14 and 15 a shocking correction. They, they thought that Jesus would be pleased by this response. They may have even had a little leadership huddle to decide on this approach. And Jesus is probably going to approve of their decision. But he does not. And he gives a shocking correction to their attitude. It says in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, see what? Their attitude, their response, their words. It says he was 
indignant. Now, I did a lot of word search on this word indignant. And here's what it basically means. It means he was indignant. (laughs) It means what you think it means. He was angry at their response. Now, when you see the anger of Jesus showing up in Scripture, when you see the anger of the Lord, you need to know that's not the opposite of love. It is the manifestation of love. And he is indignant in this moment. He's indignant towards their attitude. He's angry at their attitude. And says something shocking to the disciples. And he says, let the children come to me. And do not hinder them. He corrects them. He corrects their attitude. He corrects their posture. He corrects their, what they're thinking. He, he is the exact opposite of what they're thinking. Now, the disciples knew that the children were drawn to Jesus. They knew Jesus cared about kids. So you you would think that they wouldn't have gotten this wrong. They'd seen the way he looked at kids, the way he approached kids, and the way that kids approached them. Now, they had heard Jesus say things like, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. They just didn't know that it applied to kids. They'd heard, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But they didn't have children in the box of who that applied to. Well, he says, let them come. And he's indignant about their attitude towards Jesus. And then he gives the answer, why? Why did he say, come to me? And why is he saying, do not hinder them? He gives a a pretty dramatic statement. He says, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So there's a lot going on in this moment. And Jesus gives a statement, and that's a present tense statement. For to such belongs, that's a present tense reality right now, the kingdom of God. He, he, he opens up a truth to the disciples that they were not aware of, that they were not conscious of. They, they weren't thinking this way at all about children. And he says they belong in the kingdom of God. Now, there are some options to how we should think about this. And I'm going to share a few of them and share what I think about uh, which one is, um, is the best option. Uh, I, this is the option I think. So, Here's one option that the scholars have, have uh, described. One is this, that when Jesus says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, he's describing the blessings of heaven go to the children of believers, those in the covenant. So parents who are Christians, who are followers of God, faithful to God, that the blessings go automatically to the children, those in the covenant. And I, my personal opinion is I think it's difficult to prove from this passage. The other option that some scholars have come up with is that this is an exclusive description of what faith looks like. So when he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, he, he's not speaking so much about kids, 
or the reality of kids in the kingdom of God as much as he's just talking about faith generally. Faith is childlike. Faith is trusting. Faith is dependent. Faith is, is resting in God. And that's how children uh, respond to parents and to safe adults. That's, and, and so it's a description of faith. And, and I, I believe that it is a description of faith. I just don't believe that this is exclusively a description of faith. And the other option, uh, the option I believe that this passage is teaching, is that this is describing what God's grace looks like for everybody by showing how it operates in relation to children who have died in infancy. It's a description of the way God's grace looks like for everybody by showing how it works for kids who have died in infancy. So it's a present reality about all infants and children who die before they intellectually understand the truth of God. Does that make sense? It's not a statement that children are born sinless or that children are born innocent. Uh, The scripture is very clear about that. We are born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not born innocent. Scripture doesn't talk that way. It's not a statement giving some exact age when they are accountable to God for their sin. I believe this differs for every child. But it is a statement that for all children who die in the womb... Or as young children who are not old enough to intellectually understand or able to consciously reject the truth, they are with God in heaven. Not because of their sinlessness, but because of God's mercy and grace. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 9, he says, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. For those who see and intellectually understand and then reject, their guilt remains. But for those who don't have the categories or the capacity to see, they have no guilt. I like, the way, uh, I like the way John Piper, author and pastor, says it this way. He says, even though we are under the penalty of judgment and death because of the fall of our race into sin, nevertheless, God only holds responsible those who have the natural capacity to see his glory and understand his will and then refuse to embrace it as their treasure. Now, if you think about it, What Jesus has just said, if you believe that approach, which I hope you do, has staggering implications for the way you view the tragedies of our day. How many headlines do we read and see every day and we feel a helplessness about it? We feel confused about it? They tell me 21,000 children die every day. That's one child every four seconds. And there can be a a vagueness to that, what what happens to those kids 
Where are they? Is there some kind of post-death evangelistic moment or something? And, and where do they go? And what happens to them? And you don't have to read headlines, do you? Because you have your own headlines. I do. My wife and I tried for years to get pregnant. And then we, we get pregnant. And then shortly after, we have a miscarriage. And you, you have your questions then. Where, where are they? Where is she? Where is he? Well, I believe that Jesus is saying, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then gives a picture at the end of this passage of him holding children. He says, I'll, I'll tell you exactly where they are. They are safe in the arms of God. And can you imagine a safer place? Mom, I know that your arms are safe. Dad, I know your arms are safe. But they're not that safe. It's, it's an amazing comfort. It's an amazing view into the grace and the mercy of God and into the joy of heaven. Can you imagine the reunion on that day, moms and dads? Can you, can you picture the reunion and the joy and the laughter on that day? Man, it it's, uh, has dramatic implications, this statement that Jesus gives. But it's also a shocking statement of how salvation works. How does it work? Babies can't do anything to keep the law. We know that intuitively. They can't, they can't do things to keep the law. And in the time period, that was how somebody is saved. That's how they thought salvation worked, was by, by keeping the law. They can't, they can't do anything. They can only receive. They're only in receiving mode all the time. That's how babies and kids operate. They can only receive grace unconditionally. And that is how we enter the kingdom. He, he goes on to say, note the next phrase. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's not elevating a particular age or describing heaven as some kind of neverland or something like that. He is saying that infants are in a distinct age that cannot earn a wage like adults can and they exist completely by receiving from the outside. And he says that the kingdom must be received the way a child receives a gift, not the way an adult receives a wage. Well, how do children receive a gift? Well, it's not hard to think about that. They're completely dependent. They're humble. They're trusting. They're joyful. They just reach up with empty hands and they ask. That's how they receive. They cry. And the adults respond. They just reach up empty hands and cry. And the adult says, okay. Well, how do adults earn status? How do adults earn a wage? Well, they do it often through the reputation that they bring into something. 
They, they do it sometimes through their own wealth. That's how they sometimes earn status. Or they do it through raw effort. That's just a, a principle at work in the world. That's how adults earn status. But that's not how you get into the kingdom. Is through your reputation or through your wealth or through your effort. I, I think it is not by accident that every time this story where Jesus is addressing kids, right after that you have the, the story of the rich young ruler. Do you guys remember that story? Right after this is the story of the rich young ruler. Just, just put your eyes on verse 17. And, and, and Mark includes it here. Matthew does. Luke does. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question of the age. What do I have to do? What are the bare minimum qualifications? What do I have to do? What effort do I need to exert in order to make sure I'm safe, I'm in the kingdom, I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He says, uh, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He just lays out all these commandments and he responds to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, has he kept all those from his youth? No, he's not kept any of those from his youth. He's not done any of those things perfectly. Jesus knows it. He looks at him, verse 21 says, he loves him. And he says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And then it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The disciples are watching this encounter. They're just watching this guy reject a personal invitation to come follow me because he loved his wealth more than he loved the idea of close intimacy and uh, connection with Jesus. And then he looks around, verse 23, to his disciples, and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it says, and the disciples were amazed at his words. And they're amazed because they're, they're thinking about the implications for them personally. They have some material possessions as well. And Jesus says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And verse 26 says, they were exceedingly astonished, as you and I would be. And then they ask the question that directly involves them. Then who can be saved? How is salvation possible? How, how can I divulge enough stuff away from me to somehow earn a way into the kingdom? And Jesus looks at them and he says, with man it is impossible. Impossible in the way that a child can't earn their way with and towards God's generosity and love. But then he says, but not with God. Not with God. Impossible through your earning and your work and efforts and reputation, but not impossible with God and his grace. For all things are possible with God. And then Peter, Peter says, you know, see, we've left everything and followed you. Kind of like, what's, what about us? Okay, is, are we safe? And then he says, oh, you're safe. You're more safe than you can imagine. Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time with houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land 
mixed in with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You are safe because what is impossible for you to do through your efforts is very possible uh, with God in his grace and his mercy if you come to him with childlike faith. So the summary of that is if you try to earn your way like an adult, the doors of the kingdom stay locked. If you're here today and you're trying to earn your way into a relationship with God based on your, your past, your present, or some future resolve of what you're going to do, or if you're trying to reach into a bag and pull out, well, the reputation of my parents, the faith of my parents, all that kind of thing, if you're doing that, the doors of the kingdom stay locked. But if you ask, if you just ask like a child asks to come into the kingdom, the doors swing wide open. And he says, come on in. But you have to ask like a child. And then in verse 16, he gives us a perfect example of the kind of safety and the kind of security of what it is to know Jesus by grace, through faith, alone. He took them in his arms, and he blesses them. He blessed them. It's exactly what the women wanted. They wanted a prayer of safety, protection, salvation over my kids. And he, he obliges their request. He gives exactly what they are asking. He blesses them. And notice, laying his hands on them. Over and over again in the New Testament, the gospel writers are always fixated on the hands of Jesus. When he does a miracle and he breaks bread, they look at his hands. You know, Thomas gets to see his hands, and Jesus points to his hands. There's something about the hands of an extremely loving person that you never forget the memory of those hands. You have anybody in your life that, that you just remember their hands? Godly grandmother or aunt or your father or something like that, you can remember the way that their hands looked because they were hands of gentleness and they were hands of kindness. I hope that you do. I'm sure that there are some who you have no memory of that because you weren't handled with gentleness. You weren't handled with kindness. But they look at the hands of Jesus, the, the pure, holy, innocent, loving hands, and they just see the way that he loves kids. They, they see the way that he loves the outsider. They, they see the opposite of their initial reaction, and they are, are amazed by this grace. And notice that every kid gets touched that day. He took them in his arms. It, it's just not a picture we think of very often, do we? Jesus holding babies. Jesus held every child. He went one by one by one, taking them in his arms, speaking truth and praying over them, and then handing them back and going to the next child and to the next one and to the next one. And his grace is just on amazing display in this. Well, there's a lot of implications I've already shared, but let's just... Let's just close with this. What are some very practical things that this text shows us? What does this reveal to us that we should just grab hold of? One, I've already mentioned it, but if you don't hear anything else this morning, grab hold of this. Salvation, being in relationship with God, 
is by grace alone. Well, we named our church Grace Church. Jesus did not look at some future performance of the child and then based, based on that, you know, reach towards them. And he has not looked at some future version of you or me. He's not looked at our behavior and said, yeah, based on the behavior, based on the family history, based on their good intentions, I'll let them into the kingdom of heaven. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, but it is God's grace, and it is his initiative, and it is, he's the first responder. So if you're in the kingdom, you, you've, you've left your former life, and you've said yes to a relationship with Jesus by faith alone. He is your Lord. He is your ruler over your life. You're an imperfect disciple like all the disciples, but he is your, your Lord. Jeremiah 31 says you right now are loved with an everlasting Love, you are safe in his arms, and you have a reason to celebrate even if nothing in your life is going right right now. And there are plenty of you where you can look around and say, nothing is fitting into place like it's supposed to fit into place. And there's real suffering, and there's real issues going on in my life. But can I just say, can I, can I just say with some, some clarity that Jesus provides some clarity to the vagueness of what's going on with kids? Can he just provide some clarity to some confusion in your life and to say, listen, you are loved with an everlasting, unshaking, unbreaking love right now. Not some future version of, well, when you get your act together, then I'll really love you. No, you are safe in his arms right now because salvation is by grace alone. He has reached towards you in massive love in unshaking love, in eternal love. It's never going to go away. Listen, you didn't do anything to earn this everlasting love, and so you can't undo it. You didn't, you didn't per perform some measurable thing that you've got to continue to hit that mark. Otherwise, what's going to happen with the love? Listen, if you're in the kingdom, hear that over you. You're loved with something unbelievable and everlasting. And if you don't know Jesus, because you've never trusted him by faith, you, you thought salvation was by works. It's just a classic mistake. He says in John 1, 12, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's why adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. You get rights in adoption. And you get rights as children of God when you receive him by faith. So that's the biggest one. Here's another one. We must resist any sinful attitude or action that hinders people from coming to Jesus. The disciples said, the door's closed. It's after hours. You're not really the demographic of the people that we were thinking, the, you know, Jesus wants us to love and reach out to and minister to. We're a little confused by you, so please come back another day or, frankly, don't come back at all. Well, that's obviously sinful. It's a sinful attitude. Uh, narrowly defining, defining who we're supposed to love and minister to is a sinful attitude in action. And often it's fueled by hypocrisy. It's often fueled by laziness. It's often fueled by prejudiceness or just a general malaise and lovelessness towards people where we've said, this for and no more in my life. I have no more capacity for any more people or any more problems in my life. And frankly, people are problems. How many of you know people are problems? How many of you know that you're somebody else's problem? 
There you go. Okay, good. We're, the church is in the people business, which means we're in a messy problem business. We're here to make disciples who love Jesus, his church, and his world. Well, welcome to a mess. And we're all uh, examples of, of a mess, right? Are we not? But God's working on us and, sh- and showing us grace and tra- changing us and transforming us. And that's what he calls us to do towards other people. We've got to resist anything that keeps us from, from loving people as we ought. And lastly, we can't miss this in this passage. We've got to prioritize the next generation. God's mercy towards the next generation, particularly infants and kids, does not excuse us of our responsibility as parents and as a church to partner together to evangelize and disciple children and youth. I mean, if you were to ask us, okay, why do we do Grace Kids and why do we do Vacation Bible School? I would find it right here in this passage that he might touch them. Why do our volunteers serve Sunday after Sunday? Why do they prepare? Why do they pray over their kids that they have? Why, why do they want to be a, a voice of partnership to the parents of, of this church and of guests and visitors? It's because of one thing. We want Jesus to touch the lives and hearts of every single child in our church. Why do we do things like partner with Ministry Safe to protect kids and to, to make sure that we have a safe volunteer system? Because we don't want to hinder children through, through anything neglectful in our policies or procedures. Why are we doing Rise Up Weekend? That he might touch them. Why do we do things with Grace students? That he might touch them. Why do we equip parents through Empower to Connect? That's a conference we just had, and we'll have more specific equipping uh, ministry coming, coming soon for more parents in, in different places. That he might touch them. It's all about bringing children to Jesus and helping them see and be transformed by his grace and love. So we're going to close this way. We're going to close with a song. If you don't mind standing with me, I'm going to pray. And we're going to close with singing. And it's so appropriate to internalize this truth of God's grace and his mercy and his love. And to sing that back to him. And to be, just be thankful all over again for his, his mercy and his love. You're not in a safer place than to be in the kingdom with Jesus as your Lord over your life. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.